Uh, this morning, we, we come to the conclusion of this new series, and we've been, we've been looking at these passages where God promises us that He'll make things new. And, and today, we come to the culmination of these scriptures in the last book of the Bible, Revelation 21. God promises, I will make all things new. It's an amazing promise. And it's about the culmination of us being in heaven. It's a great, great blessing. You know, let's say this. Let's be honest for a moment. Uh, We don't talk about heaven a lot. I don't preach about it near as much as I should. You know, as a church, if you grew up in church years ago, we sang about heaven an awful lot. And today we, we don't tend to do that. And there was a criticism years ago about Christians talking and thinking about heaven too much. And and here's the way it would go. Christians are so heavenly minded, they are of no earthly good. Say that with me. Christians are so heavenly minded that they're of no earthly good. And the idea was, is that we're so focused on heaven, we don't care about what happens on the earth. We don't care about the environment. We don't care about social justice. We don't care about people's everyday lives as long as they get to heaven. But what I think that point does is it discounts the power of hope. I think the point's wrong. Because it's hope that keeps us going. And that's what's happening in our passage today. We're in Revelation 21. The emperor Domitian is now emperor of the Roman Empire. He does not like Christians. He is um, ransacking their homes. He is having them tarred and put on stakes and burnt like a street light. He's throwing them into the arena where the lions eat them up. And just to warn everybody not to follow Jesus, he has them crucified by the hundreds and thousands lining the streets. Things are not good. And what God knows is his people to endure this, is that they must have hope. And so he writes these words, Revelation 20, beginning in verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all of this, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. I love what we see in this passage. As we seek to to gain that hope for whatever you're facing in your life today, here's the three things we're going to look at. We're going to look at the nature of this hope. We're going to look at a a description of this hope as best as we can do. 
and we're going to look at the power of living with this kind of hope. First of all, the nature of this hope. And this might be new for many of us. It is for me. But the point being is the revelation says that heaven is going to come down. When I think about going to heaven, I've always thought about going up. And there's still debate in the Christian world about whether heaven will come and and be built here on this earth or a new earth or whether it will go. I understand the debate. But today I want to give you the point about heaven coming down to us. There are a lot of good points about this. If you just go back to the book of Genesis and you compare what Genesis says about the earth and its creation and the fall to what Revelation says about the new heaven and new earth, you see great parallels. God created the heaven and the earth. God gives us a new heaven and new earth. The sun is created. In the new heaven, there's no need for sun. Night is established. There is no night there. The curse is announced on all people. There's no longer a curse. Death enters history. Death is no more. Man is driven from paradise. Man is now back in paradise. Pain and suffering and death enter the world. There's no more tears and no more death. You, you see, the, the, the contrast is between the earth at the beginning and the curse and the fall <clears throat> and this new heaven and new earth where everything that was meant to be is restored to us. Let's just do a little Bible study in a couple passages. If you have your Bible or your phone, look at 1 John chapter 2 with me just for a moment. He's talking about Jesus coming back. And one interesting thing in Scripture is often when this word coming appears in your Bible, it it, it could be translated presence. It's not so much about coming, it says he's here, he's with us. Look look at this, chapter 2, verse 28. And now, dear children, continue in him so that when he appears, when he comes, when he's present, we may be confident and unashamed because at at his coming, before him at his coming. And then look over just um, at verse 2 in the next chapter. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. For we know that when Christ appears, when he comes, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. When Christ comes, we're transformed. Not only are we transformed, but so is the earth. Go with me to Romans chapter 8. Fascinating passage here where Paul's talking about the difficulty of living in this fallen world and how we groan for things to be better. But not only do we groan for things to be better, the planet groans for things to be better. Look back in verse 20, Romans chapter 8. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. In hope that the creation itself would be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know the whole creation has been groaning as in the, child, the pains of childbirth right to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, we have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. What's he saying there? The creation... And us, we know things are not right. We want it to be right. But there's going to be that day when the new heaven and new earth comes, 
when the earth will be liberated from frustration and your body will be liberated from decay. You say, well, buddy, how about 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, where it says we go up to meet the Lord. It says we who are left are still alive until the come of the Lord will certainly not precede those who fall asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command and the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be called up together with them in the air to meet the Lord in the air. So we'll be with the Lord forever. Again, though, the word used here is not just for the word coming, but it's for the presence. And we know from Jewish literature, the word is used for Jewish people by the historian Josephus to mean that God is going to come back to restore his people. And in ancient times, uh, when a, a king was coming back to his home, he would come back, but, but here's what the people would do. They would go out to meet him. And so those who subscribe to the idea that heaven's going to be recreated on earth is that what we do is we go greet Jesus in the air as he's coming back for this restoration. So a couple points here. What is restored? First of all, we have a restored earth. We've talked about that. And second, we have resurrected bodies. Uh, Jesus is not coming just to redeem your spirit. He's coming to redeem and restore your body. And the parallels are all the way through the New Testament. When Jesus was resurrected, he had a real body. Oh, it was different. But, but he wanted to make sure people knew it was real, so he, he asked them to touch him. Jesus ate food, just like we would, like that. And so that body is the body, 1 Corinthians 15 says, that we're going to have. We're not just these spirits floating around in heaven. We are these bodies restored and resurrected in a perfect form. So my friends, when we talk about heaven, we're not talking about pie in the sky by and by. We are talking about a feast around a table in reality. We're not talking about you sitting on a cloud with a harp, with a halo over your head. We're talking about you being alive, fully alive, the way it was meant to be. You see, guys, we, we all have this aching in us that says things aren't quite right. Now, let me say this to you. You're always going to have that aching until Jesus comes back and makes things right. Because they're not right. It's, it's almost like when you grow up, you know, out, out, out of your childhood, and you have these great memories, maybe, of the house you grew up in, or the neighborhood you grew up in, or the lake house you went to, or the beach place you went to on vacation. And, you, you're, you're, you know, a couple of decades later, you go, I want to go back and see that. And you get, you get so excited, and you ride up to the house, and it's nothing like what you remembered. Or, or, or the vacation spot's not near as nice as you thought. It just never lives up to that. And here's the truth, guys, is this world will never live up to it. But we have a promise that there's a day coming where there will be a new heaven and a new earth and everything will be made right. So let's talk just a couple minutes about the description of this. Now, this is where we get into actually the impossible. And and when John is writing Revelation and he's trying to describe how cool this place is going to be, he really is up against something that you really can't do. I mean, here's my favorite passage about heaven. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9. No eye has seen... No ear has heard, and no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. 
We can't talk about it. We can't see it. We can, as vivid imagination as all of us might have put together, we cannot imagine how awesome heaven is going to be. John gives a stab at it. Let me tell you some of the things John says about heaven that you need to know this morning. First of all, heaven will be right. It's going to be a place where everything's made right. Things are not made right here. But in heaven, justice will prevail. Every way you've been done wrong will be healed. Every injustice will face justice. Can you imagine the first century when all the injustice and persecutions going on, the, the fact that you know one day it's all going to be made right. Everything's going to be made right. A second heaven will be relief. There'll be no more tears, no more sorrow. In our culture, we'd say no more addictions, no more divorces, no more bankruptcies, no more sickness, no more hospitals, no more funerals, no more tears. It's all over. Heaven also will be rewarding. John, again, is limited by language, and so he's trying to describe how great it is. So he says the the walls are translucent gold. The gates are one big pearl. The foundation is precious stones, and the streets are paved with what? Gold. And we go, I don't care about gold streets. But but here's here's what John is trying to say is, God has such an abundance of resources. When he is going to pave the streets of heaven, he does not have to use asphalt. It's unlimited. He's got gold. And all John's trying to say to us is is let God blow your mind. You know, if, if my favorite part of John's description is it's like a beautiful bride adorned for a husband. Now, I will always remember the moment that Stephanie walked down that aisle and and how beautiful she looked. And I've done hundreds of weddings. And let me tell you this, guys. I've never seen an ugly bride. Maybe a few days beforehand, but on that moment, (laughs) on that moment, it's just absolutely dazzling. And that's what he says. He says, God is preparing us as a bride to meet her husband. Everything's going to be perfectly in place and beautiful. And let me say to you, if your life has been difficult, let's let's just, let's give worst case scenario. Your life from day one, you had bad parents and abusive situations, and you struggle financially, and you struggle with marriage, and you struggle with God. If everything bad has gone on in your life to this point, my friends, in heaven, it will all be undone. And you'll receive a reward that will make you forget everything that happened. Now, one other point here, heaven is relational. I think this is the, the coolest thing about heaven, is that it's going to be a place of perfect relationships. And the greatest relationship will be our relationship with God. The Bible's best definition of God is that God is love. What does that mean? When we come fully into the presence of God, we will exist in a place where there will be perfect love. And I believe we'll know each other. Eric Clapton, the famous singer, after his five-year-old son had fell from the 49th floor of his apartment in Manhattan, he didn't know what to do but to put it in 
words. And so he wrote a song of his grief called Tears in Heaven. And in Clapton said, Would you know my name if I saw you in heaven? Would you be the same if I saw you in heaven? We all ask, am I going to know that person? The answer is yes. I mean, Jesus talks about we're going to sit around a banquet table with Abraham and Isaac. And my, my goodness, what, what good to just sit there if you don't know them? And that loved one that you've lost, you will fully embrace them and know them in a place now where your love for them and their love for you will be absolutely perfect. So what, what a stab at a description. But here's what I want you to get more than anything this morning, is the power of this hope. You, you see, those who critique Christianity and say, you guys, you're just, you know, you're just living for the carrot, you know, you're just living for the reward. You're no good here because all you can think about is heaven. Let, let me say this to you. This hope transforms life. It transforms life here on this earth. In the first century... People saw it because when the persecution came and they began to murder and slaughter Christians, what shocked them was the poise and the peace of Christians in the face of death. That often they would be singing while they were killed. That quite often they would do exactly what Jesus did for his murders. They would forgive them. Then they couldn't get over that. In fact, here's what happened. The more Christians that were killed, the more Christianity in the church grew. Isn't that crazy? The early church father, Tertullian, said that the blood of the martyrs was the seeds of the church. So guys, the worse it went, the more they responded differently because they had hope. Because I'm just really, really disturbed by so many of the Christians I read on social media who act like this election in a couple weeks is the end or the beginning of life. And and that everything is so dependent on on this, you know. And if we don't, my friends, guys, our hope is not in D.C., our hope is not in a candidate, our hope is in Jesus Christ. And, guys, let me tell you if America falls apart, Christianity may blossom like it's never blossomed. And so, guys, we've got to put our hope in the right place. And that hope transforms the way we live life. You see, what happened in the first century is when you see a Christian sing in the face of death, when you see them forgive you as you're crucifying them, it shakes you up. And that's why the church grew. People saw this peace and this poise. And they go, where do these people get this? They've got something I don't have. I couldn't go where they're going with that kind of peace. And so they asked about it. And they heard about it. And it was the greatest proof of of Christianity. I believe the same is true today. As people see us, because we encounter the same things of cancer and bankruptcy and divorce and We we encounter some of the same things that people in the world encounter. And what they've got to see is that we're different. I love something I read this week in a book totally unrelated to what I was preaching on. But he talked about a man who grew up in Great Britain, A.N. Wilson. He's a Harvard graduate, very learned. 
and he completely um, rejected any sense of faith. In fact, he wrote a book in the 80s called Against Religion, Why We Should Live Without It. He was adamant about it. But just a few years ago, he recanted his own book and has become a believer. And, And some of his atheist friends asked him, what evidence do you see to believe in God? He says, you know what? What I see, and here's the evidence that changed my heart. Not superstar Christians, but everyday, ordinary Christians who face evil and death with calm and courage. He says, without God, it's inexplainable. He says, Christianity has a remarkable power to transform human life. And my friends, if you live with this kind of hope, it's not just about there. It's about here. Because we are hope-shaped creatures. Listen to a sermon by Tim Keller. He gave this story. He said, there, there are two men, true story, two men that are they're going to prison. They're going with the same sentences, 10 years. And they're both despondent about it. And one gets even worse because as he goes into prison, one of the first things he finds out is his wife and children are killed in a car wreck. The other man with the same sentence finds out his wife and children are fine and they are waiting for him to come out. They're they're willing to wait for 10 years for him to come, come out. Can you guess the story? The man with no hope for the future dies after a few years in prison. The man who knows something better is waiting, lives, and thrives. And my friends, that's the way life is. One of the great illustrations of this, this that's been used on both sides of this equation, is the life of slaves in America a couple centuries ago. The, The critics have always said, because slaves were some of the most spiritual people. Anybody knew? They they sang about heaven and robes and crowns, and streets of gold, more than anybody. And, and the critics of Christianity would say, you know what? Their faith didn't help them. It just kept them more submissive, more docile, more in trouble. It was a bad thing they had their Christian faith. But there was a man a few years ago, an African-American man who was a scholar in African-American studies, Howard Thurman, He actually spoke at Harvard University and said, the opposite is true. It was the faith in the future that allowed people in awful slavery to have the capacity to endure whatever they faced. It allowed them hope because they knew one day when Jesus came back, there would be a judgment and things would be made right. And their spirit was not crushed They weren't suicidal because they believed that something was around the corner that was better. You see, it transformed them. And my friends, whether you're living with hope or not is a big difference in how you're going to live, not when Jesus comes back, but how you're going to live right now. And another point here, this hope transforms death. Because... The Bible is honest enough to say that death is our greatest enemy. The greatest fear of people living is is death. It intimidates us. It hovers over us. But what we believe about death 
is that death is just the opening to a better life. The word Paul often uses for death in his writings is of a ship that's being unmoored from being tied to dock to set sail and be free. And so death is completely different to us. We're not intimidated. If we believe in this hope, we can face death with hope. We can endure the the worst thing that any of us endure. And that's watching one of our loved ones die. I struggle still with the death of my mom. You know, my worst days, I think she's dead. That's an awful thought. She's dead. But on my best days, I think she is more alive than she has ever been. And that is the hope that we have. And so let's conclude this, guys. The truth is this. Christians who are heavenly minded do more earthly good. Say that with me. Christians who are heavenly minded do more earthly good. Why? Because we're not tied to the things of this earth. There's an actor named James Dutton. Some of you may remember a TV show years gone by called Rock. And he's turned into a great actor. He's had a lot of roles in lots of movies. What people didn't realize about him until a few years ago is that before he became a great actor, he was actually in prison. In one interview, someone found out about him. They were asking him, how did you keep from becoming a repeat offender? So many people who go to prison, they just go out and do the same thing and they're back in prison. How did you keep from being a repeat offender? How did you keep from living that lifestyle? And I love his comment. He said to the reporter, I never decorated myself. I never made that home. And guys, we get in trouble when we make this home, when we make this imperfect place. And guys, so many of us are expending so much energy trying to make heaven on earth right now, make my life just perfect and everything line up and every relationship be good and just comfortable. And and the truth is, until Jesus comes back, earth will never be that way. And so, my friends, when we are free from the worries of all of these things, and we're free from the the fear of death, we are free to be about the will of God. We're free to already begin praying and working for the kingdom to come and God's will to be done on earth. We start the process that will one day culminate Our life has mission and purpose more than just a few years on this earth and how comfortable can I get? It gives me an amazing mission. And here's the deal. You, with this kind of hope, can face anything life will throw at you. And I promise you, it's going to throw something. And it's not going to be easy. But the great testimony of what we believe is found in how we handle it. You say, buddy, how do do I get this kind of hope? Man, that sounds so awesome. Let me tell you guys, this hope is based on two things. It's based on the cross of Jesus Christ, and it's based on the resurrection of Jesus. It's just that simple. You see, because on the cross, Jesus is able to take on our hopelessness 
What do you think that cry meant when Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was forsaken. He was lonely. He was hopeless. He goes to hell. Jesus took on your hopelessness so that you'll never have to live without hope. And then when you put that with the resurrection, it's amazing. Because what the Bible says about the resurrection is that Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. Now, that may not mean a lot to us. We would say it this way. Jesus is the first installment of the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus is not just about Jesus, it's about us. And what the resurrection says is God has done it once and he can do it again hundreds of times in our life. And so we know that it's been done and it's going to happen again. And so we walk with great hope because we know there's a day coming when the earth will be restored and our bodies will be resurrected into perfection. And so today... If you've never followed Jesus, I'm telling you the best evidence of who he is is the people that I could tell you about who face death and sickness and disease with great hope. And if, and if you today would confess him as the son of God, just like you saw Richard Retoria do, and you would be baptized, not in a pool of water, but into his death, his burial, and his resurrection, You could leave here a brand new person, and even better than that, you could leave here with hope that that's just a picture of the future. And maybe you're a Christian, and years ago you became a Christian, but but frankly, you're not living with hope because we've stopped talking about heaven, and we've stopped singing about heaven, and it's been a big mistake. Because, my friends, if you have that hope in heaven, it will make the present so much better. So if you need to come for prayers today or come to surrender your life to Jesus, if you feel hopeless today and you need some hope we can pray about, we know the place to go. Why don't you come right now to this front row while we stand and sing?